We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I am joined by the one and only Madeline Osborne, the managing editor of The Federalist. We have a lot of great guests on tap this week. Madeline is not one of them, but it is International <laughs> Women's Day. So I wanted Madeline to come on the program and, and help us celebrate. Thank you, Emily. I'm happy to celebrate with you. Madeline, how are you observing uh, this International Women's Day? Uh, I just started off the morning um, listening to... Uh, really well-known woman (laughs) mandy moore has a new single out so i listened to that and that's pretty much all i've done so far and that's probably all i will do so the thought uh behind this episode is basically that there are so many heavy things happening in the news that we discuss here every single day um that as spring is arriving um in in different parts of the country certainly here in washington dc where it was 80 degrees yesterday um it feels sort of like I saw a BuzzFeed article yesterday, 35 things that happened before the pandemic. And it was this roundup of things that happened like in December and January of 2020, December 2019 and January 2020. And it kind of I I say this seriously, it it kind of blew my mind. It was the woman who was singing in the tube in London, um, Shallow. And it feels it feels so does it not feel does that not just feel so different? It feels like just such an absolutely different time in um, our lives and in the country. And it sort of made me wistful and, and made me think, I wonder if we ever sort of get back to that. Yeah, I th- I've been thinking about that um, a lot ever since this time of year. I guess I, I get my Snapchat flashbacks from like this time uh, in 2020 or 2019. Recently, I've been getting or like Time Hop, whatever app you use. Um, and it is always very jarring to see like, oh my gosh, we went to this concert and we went to like this big party um and just like knowing that it was that was all happening and then like just a matter of weeks later you know we would be shutting our houses and that would just be um some of the last few guilt-free events or just social gatherings we would get to attend with people um i would love to hear some more of the examples from this buzzfeed piece though i did see that trending on twitter but i didn't click on it it was basically like we were all obsessed with parasite which is not true it's a great movie but like just buzzfeed was obsessed with parasite (laughs) um and it was the uh jennifer innocent brad pitt reunion um that had happened i think it was at the sag awards right oh yeah when everyone was freaking about about them holding hands or something yeah and you know it's Nothing was lighthearted in the country then um, because it was the Trump administration and cancel culture was swirling, um, although we still hadn't hit, you know, the the summer of 2020 and we still hadn't had the pandemic. So it's by comparison, it does sort of feel like it was lighthearted in a very, very different time in the country. And I I say this sincerely, I I just look back and I thought, um, and and maybe this is short sighted, but it made me think, you know, especially here in D.C. and I think a lot of cities around the country that are finally, 
finally seeming to accept the reality that we no longer need to treat COVID like an emergency. Spring is hitting. It's the same time of year. It's sort of exactly um, coming up on that two-year mark when everybody was abuzz about the uh, imminent pandemic, but not sure how severe it would be and not sure how life would change um, and not sure how long this would last because we were told, you know, you buckle down for <laughs> two weeks and we'll, you know, be able to sort of knock this thing out of the park and and life will return to normal. Um, and other people saying, no, there's no way that's possible. We'll never be there again. Um, so as it sort of feels like we're, we're at least getting rid of the lockdowns and the fear, even in some of these urban centers where it seemed like that would never go away and, and, and maybe to an extent it won't, but at least the, the emergency measures are going away. I, I just still feel like that sense is unattainable, but I, I wonder if maybe that sense of like lightheartedness, which again, like the country was n- not in a lighthearted place back in 2020 right. uh, by no means whatsoever. Um, was it sort of lighthearted? Nothing really felt normal, although maybe that's because we both work in politics and in journalism where nothing ever is normal, but um it just, it, I don't know that we can ever sort of get back to that, but I'm curious what you think. I, I think it's interesting not to like make this e- even bigger than the pandemic, because I think the pandemic is certainly mostly responsible for this, but I feel like people's ability to share experiences digitally like heightens the ability to like complain about life in the world bigger if that makes sense that's a Um, really 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 good point like so we saw all these memes for the entire year of 2020 about how like 2020 was the worst year ever and like people just always making jokes about you know we never want to relive 2020 again and then the same thing with 2021 the immediate joke after like the new year was uh, everybody having hope for 2021 and then being like oh no this is just as bad as 2020 and I, but to your point, I think we all had similar attitudes, this same attitude before the pandemic even hit. Like, of course, it's yes. wor- worse now, but like it was very this much like shared griping. Um, and then and then the pandemic obviously gave people more of a reason, more ammo. Um, but I just don't I, I think this is kind of part of our, our new normal. So. You while you were talking, I was thinking it was the same in 2016, and right, exactly. In in New Year's, it's like good riddance 2016, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's a very popular like sentiment to have between like December and January every year now. Right, Um, and that probably speaks to pessimism, Um, and especially as millennials overtake the uh, sort of power centers um, and wrest control (laughs) from boomers um, and are sort of up there with the Xers. Yeah, millennials, I think, have some really good reasons, and and Madeline and I are both uh, younger millennials, but have good reasons, especially older millennials who graduated amidst the recession and Mm -hmm. were saddled with incredible amounts of student debt and... um, um, have have never by the way student debt it's a it's a lot of people's individual faults for uh, making really bad decisions with money um, but it's also the system that subsidizes all of that 
um, and has never been changed uh, by our political class and is basically just a big, and Orrin Cass was on our podcast talking about that recently. Um, it, it, it is big ed. It's a special interest. It's um, corrupting and it's, it's sending people into mountains and mountains of debt at the beginning of their adult lives, which has effects on marriage rates. It has effects on home ownership. It has effects on car ownership. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's, there's this broader pessimism in the culture that definitely fueled populism um, and for some very good reasons in 2016. But I'm, I'm interested in continuing on your shared point thesis because this sort of uh, group commiseration that can happen on right. social media. Okay, okay, so, but there's also the group that, that goes in the other direction too, doesn't it? As far as like groups celebrating Right. I, it, yes, but it doesn't stick, right? It doesn't have the same, it's just not as easy to like uh, share popular happy memes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I, I, this kind of reminds me of, um, maybe this is far-fetched, but the CBC director's comments yesterday about, um, about when we got the news about vaccines and we were shocked at how um, high their efficacy rates were like that was a really big news cycle that hey Moderna and Pfizer have the vaccines and they're showing like you know I want to say it was like in the 90 percent wasn't it like 95 percent effective and or you know and J&J came out and it was a little bit lower but still really good more than like anyone ever thought the vaccines would be and basically the CDC director's point was like that probably hindered us a little bit, you know, the fact that, um, that we were so positive and then we didn't even stop to think about, well, are these going to be effective against a new variant or are these going to be effective in the long term? Um, and that, how that hindered their messaging. And so basically all that to say, there are positive blips in the news cycle that people latch onto because they wanted the pandemic to be over and they wanted, um, they wanted the vaccines and they wanted, or the vaccines were a symbol that the, that the pandemic could maybe be over and that we could finally put this thing behind us. Um, but then that news cycle lasted how many months before we were back into Delta and like masking again. And so I don't know, I don't know how long, um, the group, the shared group celebrations really work and, and how they also to the CDC director's appoint, you know, mess with the long-term science <laughs> was her excuse well it, it's i would just first like to say it's it's rather amusing that i started this podcast framing it as um a light-hearted <laughs> conversation and then immediately we pivoted to saying things will never be light-hearted again and yeah. <laughs> life is unattainable um i think that's also what i was gonna say when you're talking about just like millennial millennials and how we younger millennials but compared to old millennials have lived through so much that this is another sh very common shared meme right now about how millennials but especially older millennials have lived through the 2008 crash and 9-11 and you know the a pandemic and an endemic and now a world war three and or a, a potential world war three and so this is kind of a new another new i guess way of complaining like i don't know if would the the generation of the great depression like if they had memes like would they all be doing the same thing i don't know but maybe well i think social media 
could it just sort of plays on the worst of human nature and incentivizes the worst of human nature nature and puts yeah, a exactly. on narcissism and pessimism and so i think it would have the power to shape any generation at any moment in history similarly because i just think it's it's built that way and it's it's funny because they modeled social media um or they they originally promised it would it would bring us all closer together and it would end loneliness and <laughs> it would be the sort of um, tear down barriers well and it, we could it, understand people more so let's actually talk about this in the context of, of ukraine to continue the lighthearted conversation um, <laughs> it, it's it is quite interesting i remember this with iran in what 2009 so early in the obama administration twitter was fairly new and um protesters in iran who were you know being targeted violently were using twitter to sort of bring raw video to the west of what was happening in iran and it felt very new and that was a whole part of later the arab spring and it was social media was a, a got sort of a a boost in terms of its moral value um, and it, its ethics from that time period, saying this is bringing the world closer together. And it reminds me of um, the the sort of Fukuyama point about the end of history, which is very misunderstood, but does sort of come to this uh, idea that like it is much harder to fight um, with you know, democracies and uh, Fukuyama doesn't get into this. Um, but when you sort of see war that I think Putin is sort of waging in a very, I don't know if I want to say anti-modern, but a, a different sort of a, a different way and watching that play out, um, you know, with people who are <laughs> dressed like Westerners, and I don't mean mm -hmm. that to sound like ethnocentric. I just I mean it in the sense that like, we're just not used to seeing it, and we think of the West as being so advanced, um, and to see it on social media in these these stark terms, people who are are you know dressed in our fashions and having our technology, and just seem to be in the in the west with ukraine although of course that's you're saying <laughs> you're saying ukraine like looks a lot different just uh as far as like the the images we're seeing come out of it compared to past conflicts i mean it's very like obviously ukrainian culture um whether you think it fits better with the west or better with with russia um it's it doesn't look it looks more similar to our culture and to western culture than um, right. what we saw over the course of the arab spring and i'm not rendering a judgment on that at all i'm just saying when they look, no i would agree with that it's it's very jarring to see that and of course it's very very jarring to see everything that comes out of um the that, that came out of the arab spring and all of those subsequent conflicts but i think for um, especially millennials and probably Gen Z, it is it is really weird because we take for granted the sort of post Cold War order, and mm -hmm. it, it's it seems very. Um, we didn't live through the Cold War, so it seems new to us to kind of see this unraveling world order play out on social media. It's a very different, right. I think, experience. And it's similar to the experience that I think a lot of people had watching Vietnam on television um, all the way, you know, several right. decades ago. Um, that's that's it does seem hard to I don't know. It's hard to grasp. I think it's interesting. Um 
that a lot of the polling that we're seeing, I think, kind of reflects that. Um, there's a lot of polling about of Americans of ask. I saw one this morning that was asking, um, "What would you? What would like Americans do? Would they if this if they were in Ukraine in a Ukrainian situation? Would they stay and fight?" the options were stay and fight or flee. Um, and it was interesting seeing the divide among the age groups. Um, the, the 18 to 36 were way more likely to said uh, they had a much higher percentage. I want to say it was like, I don't know, 30, 70 or something would fl- would stay and fight only 30% would stay and fight versus like 70 something percent would flee. And then this stark contrast with older generations, um, who were kind of like the get more of the get off my lawn type. Um, I think it was like 60% of, you know, the 50 and 60 year olds said that they would stay and fight. Um, and those are just interesting things to think about and polling. And it's easier to, to your point, it's easier for us to picture ourselves in those scenarios. And these pictures we're seeing of the West of like literal moms and dads that look exactly like us with, you know, babies in the NICU. And this isn't a third world country, I wouldn't say. Huge tech companies in America pay next to nothing in taxes, meaning they barely give anything back to the society that made them rich. They may not do a lot of giving, but they sure do a lot of taking. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about how these tech companies enrich themselves by taking your personal data. They grab your web history, email metadata, and video searches to create a detailed profile on you and then sell that off to the highest bidder. Companies aren't just selling products anymore. They are selling you. You have become the product. To protect your identity and data from these tech giants, I recommend using ExpressVPN every time you go online. Think about all the websites you visit, Facebook, Twitter, Google, everything you do and say online is tracked by these giant corporations. Using your public IP address, they can uniquely match your activity and know your location. ExpressVPN makes you anonymous online by camouflaging your IP address and replacing it with a different secure IP of your choice. ExpressVPN also encrypts all of your data so that it's protected from hackers and anyone else that's trying to spy on you. And what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So if you're like me and believe your internet data belongs to you and not to greedy corporations, then ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three months free of a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist expressvpn.com slash federalist to learn more. So this is at least it's, it looks, I think the point stands that it looks more similar. Um, and it, technology is, has been truly equalizing and I think equalizing in some really negative directions, but like basically you can see anywhere where there are smartphones, um, it, like, anywhere, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Iran, 
um, anywhere that we're getting smartphone video or videos through Instagram filters and Snapchat. I mean, it all we all sort of feel like um, that technology has uh, been, you know, unifying in that very literal sense and that we're all using sort of similar software and similar technology. And um, it's sort of unthinkable in the United States to at least for, again, for millennials um, and for Gen Z and probably for a lot of Xers, it's unthinkable that something like that would happen in our country. And I was talking to John on the podcast about this yesterday, Madeline, um, that it's nuclear technology in and of itself is is new. Like this is um, less than, we have less than a century of experience as a globe mm. um, navigating the incredibly difficult and, and fraught politics of nuclear capability. We are very, very early in the learning process and it feels so old. Um, I was watching The Gilded Age last night and uh, without spoiling anything, I'll just say they have this remarkable scene um, um, of experiencing electricity. Um, and Thomas Edison is involved and, and all of that good stuff. Um, and they are are marveling and saying, this is history, this is going to change the world. And that I think that takes place in 1882. Um, 1882. And just, you know, less than a century from that, there right. would be a man on the moon, there would be a nuclear war. Um, there would be the the modern wo- warfare of World War II. I mean, things have just changed so quickly, and I always end up coming back to this in these conversations. Um, but it, it's true, and I think it is the the most important lens to look at our politics through. Um, and so that, to me, uh, it, it, we we're just not used to it. And let me add another framing or another. Um, element of this conversation. I remember one of the first podcasts we did during the pandemic um, was with Molly. And Molly was saying, you know, we are so basically, uh, we are so distanced from or we are so couched or we are so padded from the reality that, you know, humans live with from the the harsh reality of Mm -hmm. death. Um, and Molly sort of has that great piece from years ago saying that we need to get more comfortable with people dying in space um, because it's about, you know, human life is about the frontier. It's about right. improving and building, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, looking back on tears of the pandemic um, and as it's ending with this horrific, horrific tragedy um, unfolding in Europe that we can all see with our own eyes and can relate to because it's it's happening in real time. Um, and we're watching, you know, as we're watching that two years of the pandemic, I feel like the opposite unfolded. You know, we all baked bread for a little bit and tried to be <laughs> self-sufficient. But um, but two years later, I feel like actually things we didn't get closer to humanity or to our own humanity. We sort of continued on the path of, of distancing. Right. Ourselves from that. I think at, at the beginning, when there was so much unknown, um, we all kind of acted out of fear. You know, do you remember like the very first few, um, either like journalists or doctors who got COVID um, and they would just go on these long Twitter threads about how scary their symptoms were. And this is not to say like their symptoms were not real or scary, but like it was very terrifying, you know, to hear them talk about, you know, struggling to breathe and getting on a ventilator and, um, 
the death was very near and it and a lot of obviously a lot of people have died and so a lot of people have faced death but all that to say as we have gotten further and further away from that those first cases we have realized you know how unlikely death is for most of us we we covid has just sh- shifted so much it's been interesting to see like how you know what from going from where molly was we're like well we're gonna have to get more comfortable with death to now here we are like no we can actually say covid's not actually that uh deadly for most of us well i know what you're saying exactly and i'm wondering as you said that i haven't really thought of it before um but the people say branch covidians sort of jokingly and it's but i mean not jokingly also at the same time you know it's it's a play on the fact that there's such a cultish cultish devotion to the fauci take on on covid and it does make me wonder that whether people who sort of fall into that camp which i think is bigger than we realize but still a, a small minority of the population um are have used covid or have latched on to covid in the absence sense of those sort of things that make us really human that you know in the in the absence of um going to church every week and and believing deeply in your faith you sort of need something um that feels real and and feels human to keep you alive i don't know am i on the right track yeah and i think uh for us to watch this happening in ukraine that's kind of that kind of is that for a lot of people right that this is um, actually much more imminent, you know, getting hit by a missile is not us, but for Ukrainians, it, that death is much more real than COVID is, has ever been for me. Like I've never been worried about dying from COVID. <laughs> that sounds like a you problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as far as like statistics, I'm more, I think I'm more likely to die because I don't, don't really wear my seatbelt that much. Right? Like, <laughs> well, yeah, I think fear is a really human thing. And um, it's uh, fear. Well, fear, obviously, that was like maybe the dumbest sentence I've ever said. Um, fear, <laughs> fear is, you know, what drives uh, the, the sort of fear of death is what drives human behavior. And when you ha- have in many wonderful, wonderful ways, removed fear from uh, your life, you're going to search for meaning in different places. And I do really think that fear, the the absence of fear, the relative absence of fear from our lives on a sort of practical level, and that we don't have to worry about being devoured by predators, um, mm-hmm. or for the most part, starving. Um, I think that's creating a lot of new fears that are way less rational in addition to just, you know, the reality that we're more sedentary, which is bad for our mental health and bad for our physical health and that we are on these slot machine communication devices um, for a long period of time that we are less religious and you can sort of go on down the line. Um, but it doesn't seem as though COVID brought us any closer in the way that it seemed perhaps it would right. um, to to resolving or to thinking of modern life in a different way. And now that I'm thinking about it, just going back to your nuclear war thing, I think that 
I would, if I had to choose, I would say I am more fearful of a nuclear war than dying of a nuclear bomb than I am of COVID at this point in my life. Because one thing, I mean, not to get into like this thought experiment, but I mean, and I didn't live through the Cold War, and I don't know if you and John touched on this, but one reason that nuclear thank you for listening, Madeline. (laughs) I'm busy. Um, (laughs) One reason that nuclear war, I'm sure this was the whole point of the cold war but one reason nuclear war is so much more threatening to americans is because we the geography of the united states does not really lend itself to us being invaded right like Mm -hmm. in order for us to be invaded this is just not i'm not a geopolitics expert but (laughs) it's pretty it's pretty clear that in order for us to it would just be impossible for even china or russia to launch any sort of invasion on the united states we would have to have you you would have to have 15 super carriers off our shores you know and Yeah, I mean, there was Pearl Harbor and there was, I mean, obviously this still informs our policy on Cuba. Um, Right. But all that to say, that's why nuclear war is much more scary, because if someone really did want to launch a military um, strike on us in our home country, that would be the most logical and easy way to do it. Correct. Like you're not going to have a land invasion, at least on the continental United States. Well, and and nine eleven, of course, um, is a, that's what I think is particularly harrowing about it was that you had, and this was intentional, a symbol sort of of American prosperity. Um, suddenly go up in flames and people right. who had were living their their everyday lives outside of war um and outside of the threat of war it, it was just obviously shocking to the conscience but also i think shocking to the mentality of the west and i i think i said this on a recent podcast but it, it occurred to me recently that in let's say um 1901 if you explained what was going to happen in September of 2001, um, actually the idea of skyscrapers on that level um, and the idea of commercial flight, it was in the scope of human history just about to appear, but um, it was still a long ways off. And in a hundred years, 2001 from from 1901 to 2001 that was uh, you know that was a it was a hit on technology right it was and i don't mean that to to undermine what a really i mean it was a hit on on america on freedom on innocent civilians but it was also this you know again the symbol of prosperity that we can build these massive skyscrapers um, and we can do commerce in them and we can be free and we can live peaceful lives. Um, and it was just a, a complete disruption of that. And um, it, it really, euphoria, for instance, um, which I haven't stuck with. Um, people seem to have like really caught on in the second season, but I did watch a bit of the first season. Um, it's the, the opening credits are about 9-11. Um, the main character played by Zendaya was born like actually on 9-11 or the day before or something like that. Um, and it's it sort of, shows this this depiction of Gen Z as a generation that grew up in the shadow of 9-11 and kind of post-modernity too. Interesting. I haven't watched it because I value my brain not rotting out of my head, but um... I think, but see, I think that's what a lot of people used to say about like girls and girls was <laughs> unusually, I mean, it was a very, very thoughtful show and a very, um, 
actually kind of conservative neo-reactionary show. Um, and I think there's something similar in Euphoria in that it, 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 these, these kids are struggling with post-modernity and they, they turn to drugs and they turn to sex and they turn to all of these things because there's a gaping hole in their lives. And I do just think that actually ties together neatly with what we're talking about in terms of, of COVID not um, making us more human, but actually pushing us and pushing the markets, pushing big tech, pushing people towards a metaverse where uh, metaverse sort of philosophers and champions say, um, you know, you can you can engineer peace, you can engineer, um, you know, personal happiness and personal contentedness because you have an escape from a, a harsh and painful planet. But of course, that's not true. I just had this scary thought about an HBO show in like 20 or 30 years about the kids that were born or shortly after or during COVID and how just like utterly messed up a lot of them are going to be in the same ways. Well, your daughter was born during COVID. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what do you worry about? Not necessarily for her. I think I would be more worried about the kids who are like in pre- preschool and elementary school right now with the masks and people and kids who have been uh, more from the if they if their parents are in that Fauci cult. But like there are children who have not had play dates with friends in two years, right? And that I just cannot imagine how psychologically damaging that is, or or the masking of of four and five year olds. Or or sitting them apart at lunch with plastic dividers between them. Like I, I live in Texas and and they, we don't really mask kids here and we haven't for a year, but I have still walked by elementary school cafeterias where they have plastic dividers. Um, and that's, I don't, obviously we know that's not doing anything, but also just what is that doing to their development and the way that they view human interaction and relationships. Um, and so that HBO show is going to be very scary. Um, you moved back to Texas from, um, Capitol Hill actually shortly before the pandemic. And I'm curious how different you think, um, things would have been if you would have stayed in DC. I don't know if I'd still be married. (laughs) Uh, I don't, I don't know how people survived working from home in a 600 square foot apartment. Like we, I'm just so thankful that we we got out. We did for sure. Well, but you also had, I mean, the lockdown seems like it was so much less severe um, where you are. It seems like you, you, how long do you feel like you've been roughly back to normal? I went to a probably 200 person wedding with no masks or limited masking and no social distancing in October of 2020. And so, and that was during the spike, the second spike, I guess. I don't know what you want to call it, but, um, and so people were getting more COVID and we were like, yeah, this is definitely probably going to be a super spreader event. Um, but it didn't bother me. And I was living my life as normally as I could minus like the mask mandates. Um, I think Abbott enacted a mask mandate in July of 2020, but before then, I wasn't wearing masks, and even then, I still kind of ignored it and wouldn't really wear masks. So I feel like I personally have been living my life completely normal as much as I could, except for places like the doctor's office where they would require 
um, masks or not let my husband in um, to my appointments or things like that. Granted, um, that was for other reasons that had nothing to do with COVID. He's just a threat. <laughs> yeah. He, he, no. Uh, <laughs> that, that was not his choice. Um, he's nobody very, allowed, he, nobody he, over he, six foot four is allowed. He's very tall, office. very tall and scary, <laughs> though. I could understand why they would not want him there. Um, but no. So I think I personally have been living my life as normal as possible um, basically since like june of 2020 so i don't know um but like definitely by october uh even people around us were like done with it yeah it's it's so it's been very very interesting to i feel like i've been taking crazy pills for the last year when like people are arguing over masks or you know whatever vaccines all that kind of stuff because mostly just masks like i will hear people have conversations like oh i like i'm not wearing i'm i'm gonna really like stick it to the man and not wear a mask in the airport and i'm like i didn't do that a year ago (laughs) (laughs) gosh what i've learned from this is that you are a super spreader and a a bad neighbor (laughs) i don't i don't think i've ever had covid um well we don't know but But also if you never get tested then you don't have to worry about it uh, so this i live in an apartment building and um don't have my own car because i live in a big city where it would cost me more money to have a car and uh although i I sort of wish i had a car but the masking has been every time i leave my door i have to have a mask um otherwise uh, well yeah and, and otherwise you sort of you can make this decision up for yourself but you are seriously risking becoming an, an internet karen and and having a, a social media confrontation that is a serious risk if you left your apartment without a mask um got into an elevator and walked do you around wear the them building. outside no 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 um, but like people did for a while i've seen this is what i'm yes, saying when i take yes. crazy pills like i feel like i'm taking crazy pills because i'll see headlines that are like la just lifted their outdoor mask mandate yeah people and still... i'm like i literally have never once worn a mask outside yeah and so there there there's been a period of time where i just i've stopped basically wearing masks unless people are are, are you know for the last probably six months or something after i mean after i was vaccinated i just sort of was much less inclined to force myself into the mask did, but did you see do you still see people wearing masks outside in dc like, yes, to, yes. like to this day yes yes people do it um absolutely people do it and i think a small percentage of the urban population always will um you know people in, in dc and in, in new york in big cities i think they absolutely there's there's going to be a small percentage of them that that almost always will see that is mind-blowing to me yeah it's crazy but again if you if you don't have any any hope and some very real foundation then i feel like you're really easily overcome with irrational fears and i I, I I know this might sound to some people like a galaxy brain take, but I, I believe very firmly that this is um, a consequence of secularism. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say because, I don't know, it's just hard to say. But I, I will um, sort of close here by... Um, it reminds me of this this piece Kevin Williamson wrote today in National Review, which is similar to something that um, I've written a couple of times, which is basically that we're all in these silos. And he was like, you know, 
Tucker Carlson show is enormously successful, but um, two things can be true that everyone that Tucker Carlson has a hugely watched show and that nobody really watches Tucker Carlson. And the point is that, you know, he compares it to mash. He compares it to the mash finale to um, all of these different moments. And, you know, we've made this point before on the podcast about I love Lucy and being the Ricardos, which, which comes out right out of the gate in the opening scenes of the movie and talks about how that ever an average episode was watched by some like 60 million people. Um, and so we just don't have the sort of ca- same common experiences. And to bring this discussion full circle, um, it's, that's a, that's a good point about how we have these shared uh, grievances that drive pessimism and shape the way we think about our generation and the way we think about our world. But how shared are these experiences if BuzzFeed is saying everyone was obsessed with Parasite in 2020? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or the woman singing in the tube. <laughs> well, although I feel like that, um, I don't know, I feel like that has... You think people are obsessed with her? I mean, there, there are some like very real things, like you're saying, this pessimism about the end of the year. There are some very real like touchstones of common culture. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I think that does exist, but I don't know how to compare it or how to think about it. Um, and in this hyper novel world where things change really quickly and the differences between life for one generation and the next generation are absolutely massive, um, this is just going to keep getting worse and the pandemic even the pandemic wasn't a shared experience for people. right the, the first month of it was um but then the country sort of went it's different way you know just depending yeah, exactly. on where you are some people lived through riots um and and some people lived through you know a couple of months of of weirdness and this weird national mood but um their area and was it's untouched. pretty crazy that like for as similar as we are in our jobs and and viewpoints and all these things and shared experiences past Sharon's experiences that just living in two different states we've had two extremely different pandemic experiences yeah no, although yeah. you say I'm a bad neighbor but I did wear a mask when I was in labor and pushing my baby out of me so at least absolutely I unbelievable was a good neighbor to my doctor when she asked that's just me to un- be so I don't want to hear how I didn't participate when required. No, I was kidding. Um, I, I was, of course, kidding. But we also don't, Joe Biden tried to muster this sort of idea of masking and vaccinations as patriotism. And you can't even do that anymore. Um, it, it has been interesting to watch. And, and John and I talked about this, the uh, political establishment, sheer nationalism and masculinity and self-defense in Ukraine all the while, you know, just absolutely undermining the American sort of shared respect for all of those things um, over sure. here domestically. So I don't know. I, I think there's probably a tipping point in the future. Um, you know, this. Uh, I, I think there is probably a tipping point in the future. But the fact that that didn't happen during COVID and during this pandemic, um, and if anything, things only got worse, it's not heartening. Yeah, they sent for everyone else but their own country and their own people. That's right. Madeline, um, I have to say, we always, when we do podcasts together, always get criticisms for um, using the word like a lot. In our vocal fry. But I think people should come to appreciate it. That and I just genuinely think it's you. I I feel you are the one, you are the offender, the primary offender. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Thank you for... (laughs) Thank you for taking ownership over your uh, role in this. I'm sorry. I'll work on it. But uh, I think the 
the bigger issues that we should just stick to um, actual International Women Day and pop culture and not um, depressing news cycles. Well, that and you are a geopolitical expert, as you said earlier. <laughs> no, I said I'm not. Yeah, but what I got from that is actually secretly you are a, a dedicated student of geopolitics and um, you I, are prepared. I'll, I can be your first guest after the first nuke is dropped. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> The podcasting goes on. <laughs> That's actually that would be where humanity is in 2022. Would, Everyone would be worried about getting their podcast out. It would be a nuclear emer- holocaust. It would yeah. be an emergency pod for sure. Emergency pod, <laughs> nuclear holocaust edition. <laughs> Madeline Osborne, managing editor at the Federalist, a geopolitical expert. Thank you, as always, for um, this this episode that we started as saying it would be lighthearted and an escape from the harsh realities of our politics in today, both domestically and abroad. And then we continued to just wallow in the misery of our politics, both domestically and abroad. Yeah, we can't help ourselves. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. <laughs> Anytime, Madeline. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Darling, you got me right.